Welcome to the virtual LSE. Um, wherever you're joining from, we're very grateful to have you with us. Uh, my name is Amelia Peterson, and I'm a fellow in the social policy department here at the LSE, um, and also have the privilege of working on the book that we're launching today, uh, Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World. Uh, first, just to note the usual housekeeping, um, this event is being recorded, and provided there are no technical difficulties, will be made available as a podcast. Uh, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the speakers, which you can do so using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And I will indicate when we're taking questions in the second half of the event. Uh, but now as a way of introducing our panel, um, I want to just briefly chart how this has come together because while we are here to launch a book, um, that book itself is part of a diffuse ongoing effort that all those present have been engaged in in different ways to evolve a collective sense of education's purpose. So just over a year ago, Sujetha Bhatt, the CEO of Dream a Dream, a major nonprofit working with 3 million children a year in India, and Vishal Talreja, advisor to the Delhi government and to a wide range of international initiatives, together published a series of blogs and began convening people to pause and ask what if, to imagine different futures for education. And it's likely that no one has been in more conversations over the past year about the future of education than Andrea Schleicher, Director for Education and Skills at the OECD. Um, and reflecting on all of that activity in a conversation in September of last year, Andreas joined with Tom Fletcher, Principal of Hartford College, Oxford, and collaborator on efforts to develop global competency as a focus of education. And together they were observing a different attitude amongst political and policy leaders greater openness to considering what not only our economic, but also our existential interdependency might mean for education. And these strands of thinking are really brought together in Thrive by Valerie Hannan, who like Bashal, is an advisor to the OECD effort to envision the future of education and skills in 2030. Valerie spent her career in different roles locally, nationally, and internationally in education, and has been focused for over a decade on this question of how education can meet the challenges we face. And so to set the groundwork for our conversation today, just briefly, it's my pleasure to hand over to Valerie to introduce Thrive. Amelia, thank you very much indeed. And may I offer my thanks to LSE Live as well to, uh, for, for giving us the space um, to explore this in, immensely important issue. As you say, it's now becoming increasingly debated across the world and we think not before time. So um, using the incidents of the publication of this book, um, I hope it will spark off more debates and, and more interaction um, amongst uh, civil society, amongst politicians, uh, amongst all, all uh, manner of people, about what, what we really want the job that education does to be. What, what job are we asking education systems to fulfill for us? And I don't think we've asked that question in a serious fashion. Um, for, for 100 years, in effect. So if I may um, set the scene for the contributions of this distinguished panel, let me just um, share my screen to give you a sense of the argument within the book and where I think that takes us. Thrive's thesis is fundamentally that purpose is paramount. Everything flows from your sense of purpose. And for the most part, that's been tacit, implicit, and not debated. And not revisiting it enables the continuation of what we see as a dysfunctional education paradigm. Um, obviously, space does not allow us to interrogate just how dysfunctional it is, but I'd make two points. One, um, that it is misaligned to our contemporary needs. 
as individuals and societies, and that it is actually systematically fails um, and excludes by design large portions of our population. How can that be right? But to get over these problems with the paradigm, I think it's not a question of just the how and what kind of techniques, what kinds of curricula, um, uh, pedagogy, assessment we employ. We have to have something that lies above all of that and sets a course. And I think that course is determined by our, our views about purpose. So the book Thrive proposes that education's purpose must be to address all four levels of striving, that they are profoundly interconnected. I'm going to argue that this is quite a radical vision. The four levels are firstly the planetary global. That is to say, how do we create a livable planet on which we can continue human life and the life of other species? How do we overcome the destruction of biodiversity? And how do we work towards peace? That is the global competence that you mentioned in relation to Tom Fletcher's work and, and Andres's indeed too. We need to be thriving at the societal or the community level in place. How do we create more equitable, more, yes, indeed, prosperous societies and communities who can live, live together in a way which is satisfying and purposeful? How do we thrive at the interpersonal level? How do we create relationships? Because after all, for most of us, relationships are the key thing that makes for a good life. How do we create learning goals within schools and colleges that work towards young people who know how to make and create and sustain loving and respectful relationships. And then the final or maybe the first frontier, thriving at the intrapersonal level within ourselves as humans. Um, I hardly think this needs debating at a time when at least two other epidemics are at work the epidemic of mental ill health, if I just give you one data point, that in the UK, 7% of young people have attempted suicide before they are 17. 7% before 17. I find that such a shocking statistic. But of course, it's the tip of the iceberg, where we all know that young people are experiencing increased levels of mental ill health, whether that's anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, and so on. And simply at the physical level as well, the epidemic, the second ep epidemic I want to mention is that of obesity. And so how can it be debatable that schools and colleges ought to have at central the notion that they enable young people to learn their own bodies, their own minds, their own emotions? It's a learning challenge and not one for therapy down the line. So three points about this notion of thriving at four levels. First of all, it's post-humanist in the sense that we argue that nature, other species have rights too. It's not all about us. We've had a profoundly and utterly blinkered anthropocentric view, I believe, and we need to take into scope now the rights of other species and our planet itself. We need to end the dominance paradigm where humans think they have dominance over other species. Some races think they have dominance over other races and men have dominance over women. Second point is it focuses on the common good, that much forgotten notion of the common good. But, you know, equity depends, we believe, on democracy. And education is the life support system for democracy. Democracy is currently in trouble 
People have been disappointed by democracy. And we come to, when we come to the question posed for this seminar, can there be a global purpose? We have, of course, contending notions of A, whether democracy is a good thing anyway, and B, what counts as democracy? And the third point I want to make about this model is that it encompasses the world inside us and between us in a context where we are witnessing a loss of individual meaning and purpose, and indeed the hacking of humans, as Yuval Noah Harari uh, calls it. So that's the way we see this. And I wonder if I can just take us in now to the question posed by Alice. Can we have a new global purpose for education? Can it be beyond national and, and community boundaries? Well, thriving, we hoped, might provide that kind of concept. Is it arguable that we all want to thrive? But of course, interpretation of what counts as thriving is value-laden. Andreas, I'm sure, will be talking about the OECD's project Education 2030. And it elevated as its North Star or purpose the notion of the future we want, which has a great strength in that it, it brings it back to communities to debate the notion of what kind of future you want. But the point is, this is uh, value-laden across different cultures. What makes thriving societies is especially contested. And I think that the notion of democracy is central here. If we believe that thriving entails equity and equity depends upon democracy, where does that leave us in terms of the global debate? And I think that school educators, however, are increasingly becoming inspired and guided by a refreshed sense of purpose. I find this debate in increasingly powerful within individual schools and institutions who are looking for something which is more inspiring and, and, and clear than the kinds of national statements about curriculum frameworks that they've come across in the past. So that's where this has come from. I hope it sets out a useful way to debate the issue, but I do believe finally that somehow or other, we need to start engaging politics in this debate. And for the most part, politicians are silent about it. It would be very interesting to know if Andreas, when he comes to speak about this, finds a bigger appetite amongst politicians and leaders of systems to engage in the debate. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Valerie. And now, um, if we'll end the screen share, we'll just come back. And I'm going to turn to you, Vishal, and start by asking, based on all of your experience in many different networks, you've argued that we have to imagine a different kind of purpose for education. Why is that so important for us to be able to think beyond our assumptions about what education is for? Uh, thank you, Amelia. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be here amongst the other panelists. Uh, I think Valerie has set the context very beautifully about a new global purpose for education. My own experiences of uh, largely working in education ecosystems in India, but also exploring and understanding other education systems across the world, uh, have brought me to three or four realizations about why we need a new purpose for education. One, education traditionally has worked only for the top 10 to 15% of the population. Uh, and, and that population that has gone on to then do well in life and society and careers and become decision makers and influencers and people of privilege in society, largely people like you and me. And in the process, we have left out a large chunk of 80% of the population for whom education has not served a purpose. 
So if you go back to the point of equity that Valerie was talking about, and if we truly want education to be equitable, then we have to design purposes of education that work for every kid, uh, for every individual, and help each individual build the capacities to thrive. Uh, the second, uh, of course, is that, you know, if I look at purely from an Indian context or many of the countries in the global south, um, when India got its independence in 1947, less than 15% of the kids were in school or any kind of formal learning environments. Uh, we have managed to, over the last 70 odd years, bring almost 98, 99% of our kids into primary school. Uh, so majority of the kids going into, say, public education systems in India today are first-generation schoolgoers, uh, which means they come from early experiences of poverty, lack of emotional love and care, neglect, in extreme cases, circumstances of abuse or violence. Uh, and when they enter an education system, they are not fully developed emotionally, mentally, physically. And yet they are expected to engage and be successful in an education system that's designed as a one-size-fits-all system. Uh, and that's where it starts failing them. So by the time they reach an age of eight, nine, they're so far behind uh, in their own learning journey that they start dropping out. Uh, less than 25% of the kids who join college and uh, join school in the primary years even think about joining university in India. So education is not working for the most vulnerable and it is failing them miserably uh, in countries like India. So we need to design a whole new purpose and a whole new implementation plan around education. And thirdly, finally, I think something Valerie talks about quite a bit in the book also is that the world is increasingly becoming a complex space and there's high levels of uncertainty and change. And we have seen that even in the pandemic that the future that we are preparing our kids for is already here. And our education systems are not preparing our children to deal with complexity. They're not building in them the life skills that they need to be resilient, adaptive, and have the agency to thrive in a complex environment. Uh, so these, these are the three reflections that I have about why we need a new global purpose of education. Thank you. And Andreas, I know you thought a lot about that question of the agency to thrive in complex environments. How is the OECD responding to these challenges you see? What, what role do you hope the organization can play in reconsidering the purpose of education in today's world? Thanks, Amelia. And first of all, congratulations to the book. You know, we have endless debates about the how of education, but we actually quite rarely discuss the purpose, the why and the what. So congratulations for taking this up. I think it's such an important kind of discussion. And uh, yeah, you ask about the OECD. We look at this uh, from different angles. I think one is simply to develop uh, metrics that help us see what is important rather than just what's easily measurable and uh, it's i think very important when we discuss the why and the what of education how can we make that future visible you know visible for students visible for educators vis visible for policymakers i think this is a very very important part of the discussion a second angle is valerie you pointed already this is the you know establishment of scenarios for the future you know uh, particularly after this, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, the discussion shouldn't be about, you know, building back better. It needs to be about building forward differently. 
And that's what we really need to engage with. And, um, you know, Vishal already pointed out, you know, we have seen this growing disconnect between, you know, the infinite growth imperative around us and the finite resources of our planet, between the financial economy and the real economy, between the wealthy and the poor, between the concept of, you know, gross domestic product and the well-being of, of people, between technology and social needs. You can sort of establish an endless kind of contrast. And I don't want to hold education responsible for all of this. Absolutely not. But I don't think we should underestimate the power of the knowledge, the skills, the attitudes and the values of people in shaping this future. Uh, I think we often have a very instrumental view on education. We educate you for a specific job, to play a specific function in the world in which that we know. But I think if we take a step back, and I think Vishal and Valerie made that point already very well, to think about you know the future in a more open way, we will end up with a different view of education. Uh, we need to become better at imagining, imagining different kind of futures for education. And if we are capable in doing that, you know, we will be better prepared for the future that will eventually arrive. And the future will always surprise us. You know, today it's the pandem pandemic, tomorrow it's, you know, climate change, the day after, you know, artificial intelligence will disrupt our way of walking, our way of, of being. I think the future will always surprise us. And by sort of becoming more open to alternative futures, will we be better prepared? So that's the second kind of really important part of the work of the OECD. And the third is about to help us better understand the, the context. No, that is, um, you know, how do we navigate the risks and leverage the opportunities? What's the right balance between modernizing and disruption? You know, I think this is a crucial question. You know, to what extent can we evolve? To what extent do we need to think differently? You know, how do we reconcile new goals of education with the structures that we have that won't change very rapidly? You know? Can we actually reconcile? How do we foster innovation while recognizing the very conservative social nature of the education enterprise. And, you know, as parents, we are sometimes part of the problem, not part of the solution. We do get very anxious when our children no longer learn things that were very important for us or when they start to learn things that we no longer understand. The teachers are often more likely to teach how they were taught than how they were taught to teach. And as a policymaker, you know, you can lose an election when something goes wrong in education. But you're never going to win an election over education because it just takes so long to translate good ideas into better outcomes. We need to address those kinds of questions about the dynamic. And that's really something that's very much at the heart of the work of the OECD. In a way, you know, we need to raise the political cost of inaction very clearly. You know, we need to actually make more visible, you know, what the consequences are of our current way of education. But we also need to find ways to lower the political cost of action to make it easier for people to take risks. And this is not just about policymakers. This is also for the educators in the classroom. Most of the structures that we currently have actually are hostile to innovation. They penalize. They do not reward change in innovation. I think we need to take those structures on. So that's basically um, very much the third area of the work. And then, you know, Valerie already pointed out to our learning Compass Education 2030, where we are trying to sort of think about questions around curriculum design, the, the very what question, you know, uh, how do we translate the ideas of tomorrow into the learning context of today? It's uh, what is very clear in the world of tomorrow. Success is no longer about 
just teaching people something, but it's about helping them to develop a more reliable compass so that they can navigate the kind of ambiguity, the uncertainty, that they can manage tensions and uh, resolve dilemmas, that they can imagine, create the future, and most importantly, that they can mobilize their cognitive, social, and emotional resources to actually do something. Now, this is about you know living with yourself. It's about living with other people. It's about living with the planet. No? So these are uh, some angles where we are trying to make a difference in the OECD. Absolutely, yeah. And you talked about the aspects of the future that will always surprise us, but one aspect which we know is going to be with us is the impacts of the pandemic. So Sujaita, thinking about the impact that that has had on children, how does that change how we think about the purpose of education? Yeah. Um, I think when Valerie was speaking and setting context and she spoke about how education systems are misaligned uh, and it excludes a large portion of the population, I was like, she's talking about India. And then I realized this must be happening all across the world. But this is what's happening in India, right? Just talking about children in India. When we went into the first lockdown a year back, uh, we, we just reached out to the young people in our programs. We wanted to understand what's going on. And this is the experience that they have gone through, uh, through the pandemic. First is just the sudden loss of control. You are a young person used to getting up, going to school. You think of life a certain way and you've suddenly lost all sense of control and you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. The stress and anxiety that comes with that. There's been just so much misinformation. There's so much fake news, contradictory um, you know, news articles, so we don't know what to believe. Children are trying to make sense of that. And then, of course, just the sickness, just the sickness and the death. Uh, we are right now in the second wave, and uh, we have seen the highest death rates anywhere globally. So we can just, you know, it's, I can't even imagine today the uh, mental health impact that is having on children and how they are making sense of this level of loss and grief. So how, you know, what they must be going through and what, what systems are supporting them to even make sense and meaning of this. Uh, and what is happening now is that we are expecting the third wave in uh, July, August, and everywhere it's like the third wave is going to be the kids in India. One, because the first wave was the older people. Now in the second wave, it's more middle-aged. The third wave is going to be the kids, and we're not, we don't have enough vaccinations to vaccinate them. So it just makes common sense that it's going to be children and the politicians just announced that we're going to have our board exams, which basically is the exam you take to go to join your undergrad degree. So uh, it's just mayhem in terms of the insensitivity, just the lack of making understanding of the impact of this on children and making them part of just, you know, as part of the solution, holding them as this pandemic unfolds on them as, as well. And for me, all of this is true of all children everywhere. Uh, but there's also an additional layer, which Valerie spoke about, of inequity. So then what is happening with children who are coming from vulnerable backgrounds, who earn less than $2 a day, there's almost 60% of the population in India who, are, who lives on less than $2 a day. There's loss of livelihood due to the lockdown. So they don't have food. They don't have access to groceries. They don't have access to basic necessities of life. Uh, there's migration because a large population migrates to the city to uh, get their livelihood to, to do work. They're moving back rural, but the health infrastructure in rural is worse. So then when you fall sick in, uh, in the more rural communities, you're kind of left to your own devices. Children are be forced to become adults because, you know, parents are sick, 
there's no food so children have to figure a way out they're forced to become adults we do know that the impact is more gendered that girls are suffering more than boys and potentially a high we already know of a lot of girls who are getting married who are dropping out of school and will potentially lose them even when we open up and schools open up uh, and in this recent wave there has been an enhanced uh, recognition of uh, orphans because children are losing parents either one or two parents uh, and the system is, has no clue what to do with uh, children who are losing parents to covid so this is really what's going on right and this is true one is on like i said what's happening with children all children but then i add the inequity and i add uh, the impact on children who are coming from vulnerable backgrounds and the education systems have are not giving them an answer they're not holding them or offering them something that can that can help them respond to this so we must ask ourselves what is the purpose of education then if it is not preparing children for this if they, if it is not supporting children for this and uh, i fully agree with andreas it is it is time we built forward differently uh, and it's almost we must take accountability for how we have let, let our children down uh, and do it from that space of accountability and building a better future for them thank you um tom i'm going to tend to you thinking from the perspective of an organization what can organizations like this one the lse or your own university do how can we help to bring about a shift in or an expansion of education's purpose well just to reinforce those messages we've heard and i i could sit here all day just listening to these speakers i mean it's absolutely outstanding to have this opportunity to to focus as andreas says on on the why and not just the what and the uh, and the how i'm a i'm an imposter in this conversation i'm a i'm a diplomat a recovering diplomat recovering ambassador um but to come back to what vishal's description of the challenge here you know that that has meant that for the last 25 years i've been dealing with the consequences of our failure to understand the purpose of education you know with with the conflict with the inequality uh with the injustice with extremism and um and conflict out there and so the realization for me in that world has been that education is actually upstream diplomacy that you know, the way to be a more effective diplomat is actually to join this conversation because we in diplomacy need education to improve but maybe perhaps education also needs a bit of diplomacy as well you know coming back to valerie's point much of this is about the politics and we diplomats know a thing or two about negotiation and resolving political difference but what does that mean then for institutions as you as you ask amelia i think i mean i think it's it's a great set of challenges the the challenges that valerie set out at the beginning for any university uh, any other inst- educational institution to to take on and for me when when i try to think what that then means for the university of the the future i think there are four four ideas it throws up and by the way none of them are actually about technology uh you know the tempting thing here and we haven't done it so far um is basically to say this is all about the next gadget it's all about the way that the smartphone will change education and so on. of course edu- technology is going to smash through the way that education is delivered but actually the when you go back to the principles of of the purpose of education as described by the speakers so far i think it it focuses on the, uh, some different questions so so one is this idea that education becomes preparation for life not just a sabbatical from it we tend to think of universities as somewhere we go for 3 years uh before going out into the world and then that's it um and we tend to think of universities and and are now based at oxford 
as places where you can hone you know, your deep academic knowledge, but not necessarily develop the skills and values that Andreas described, this sort of this balance between head, hand and heart that we need as we go out into the world. I think the second big principle it throws up for me is the, is the idea of, of universities as, a, as an idea and not, and not as a building. You know, when you, when you picture a university, you think of a, a great big building, you think of libraries and you look around at this, at this window, the Bodleian Library is just out there. Um, and we forget sometimes the original idea of, of universities, which is how do we become better ancestors? All the reasons that people have described, you know, how do we preserve the best of what we've learned from our ancestors and ensure that we pass that on to our descendants? That's not 21st century education, that's first century BC uh, education. But it gives us a, a stronger sense of purpose and helps us make the, the tough choices that we have ahead over our, uh, our funding models and so on as an institution. I think the third one then is how can we make the university of the future, the education of the future, open and not closed? We tend to make education at the moment very inaccessible. Our expertise is very inaccessible. We, we hold people out. We spend more time trying to work out how to stop people come to coming to university than actually trying to help people to come uh, to university. Our, our institutions are not very permeable. Once you're in, you're in. Fantastic. You're in the club. You get to join this amazing opportunity to learn. But as, as Vishal described, if you're outside that, then you're outside the club and you miss out on all of the opportunities that that, uh, that, that gives to the 10, 15% who are in the club. So how can we make our institutions more open and less closed? And related to that, I think the fourth idea would be that how can we ensure that when you come into an educational institution that you're embarking on a learning curve, you're not coming out of the end of it and hitting the learning valley. Your education doesn't stop when you leave university at 21 because all of the challenges that people have described from automation to inequality to these big global challenges of climate change, they all require us to continue to learn all the way through our lives and not to think that, that our education stops the minute we get our, our paper uh, qualification. And so our institutions will have to adapt to that new reality and make sure that people are given this opportunity to continue to learn throughout their lives. So I think that's right. the, the three big questions I'd love to kind of mull over as we think more and more about education. Are one, are we, are we basically developing Fletchers for a world of muskets and, and bayonets? The Fletchers were arrow makers and we got 300, 400 years to adapt, to change our craft, uh, to adapt to a new world of, of rapidly advancing technology. The Fletchers of today, the equivalent today, the office workers of today don't have that luxury. Their, their jobs are disappearing as we speak. At, you know, as we go through this call, these jobs are being uh, disrupted. But are we still developing Fletchers, basically? And the second big question for me is, are we developing uh, our children so that the robots work for them or, or so that they work for the robots? Are we really prioritizing the, uh, an education that makes them distinctive from the machines, that helps them preserve those things that really do make us truly human, empathy, emotional intelligence, creativity, curiosity, and so on. And then final thought, are we really developing young people who are kind, curious, and brave? And certainly kinder, more curious, and braver than, than we are. Kind enough to take on the inequality that Bishal has, has described. Curious enough to actually develop the ingenuity uh, to take on the big global challenges that, uh, that Valerie described at the beginning. And brave enough, actually, to find new ways of living together amid this 
extraordinary period of change and turbulence that they're going through in the next, you know, in, in their lifetimes. Thank you. Three very important questions. Um, Valerie, I want to come back to you and just this question of the political challenge. Um, but first, just to mention, we will start to take questions from the chat shortly. So um, I know a couple have already come in, but but do at this point, if you have questions, start to enter those there. Um, so, so on this question of, of the politics, Valerie, how do you think we start to bridge um, from a kind of education debate to a wider societal debate? Thanks, Amelia. And I think that um, some of the things that both Tom and Andreas had, all the panelists actually, but particularly Tom and Andrea had to say, Andreas had to say about this, feed in to my response, which is that um, uh, it is the case, of course, that people get the shivers when you talk about radical change in education um, and they shy away from it. And almost every politician across the world um, remains with this kind of fixed view about as Andrew said, I think, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet um, and a highly instrumental view of training people for jobs. So even Biden, with his highly radical agenda, who knew that he was going to be such a radical, but a highly radical agenda, nevertheless, um, everything he puts out there, like the notion of his, of his green revolution, is, is postulated in terms of millions of new jobs. So jobs, 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 jobs. Now, of course, jobs are terribly important, um, but actually I would interject that in an age of increasing automation, there is a serious question about the degree to which um, humans will be displaced to a degree by automation and the possibility to seize that opportunity to have more smoothed out lives, to have possibilities where people are not working necessarily, you know, five or seven days a week and others with no work at all, but distributing work and distributing income in a more equitable way to have richer lives. So jobs, jobs, jobs being the kind of um, tenets of most politicians is where they feel safe. And you can understand why. So Andrew's posed the question, how do we build bridges such that politicians can move into this space of some more radical questions? and not feel that they're sort of, you know, kamikaze, that they're committing political suicide. And I think there's a number of um, strategies or perhaps tactics that we might be employing. The first is pressure from below. And um, I do think that we need to be encouraging and enabling scaffolding conversations about purpose at every level, at the school gates, in the classroom, at teacher-parent meetings, um, amongst local politicians about this. And giving people a kind of vocabulary, um, uh, a frame that they could, and maybe Thrive does that, you know, there's something kind of intuitively sensible about thriving, and people do get it. And I just chuck in here one piece of research evidence that comes from the Brookings Institution that came out, I think, a couple of weeks back, in which they did a huge survey across 14 jurisdictions in the world. I think it was something like 26,000 parents um, are basically what do people want from education. And the findings really surprised me because what it showed was, and you'll find all of this on, on the Brookings website, that parents are up for a different kind of education now. We think of parents as being fundamentally conservative, and maybe, you know, of course, many, many are, but there is a rising movement amongst parents, perhaps assisted by the pandemic, when they looked under the hood about what was going on in classrooms, and said, really, is this it? This is the most 
interesting thing that my school could offer my kid. So parents are sort of getting into the space now where they're intrigued by the possibilities of a different, much more experiential approach to education. So one is fostering conversations at all kinds of levels, wherever we can, about purpose and making it accessible, the conversation, not, you know, not too abstract, not too theoretical, but related to people's lives. And then secondly, I think what we need to do directly with politicians themselves, and I think OECD has got a huge opportunity and responsibility here, is to shine the spotlight on those institutions and microsystems who are doing it, who can show that if you move in this direction and create institutions which attend to every single level of thriving and give them equal weight, um, it is the case that one, everything does not go to hell. Those young people come out with terrific cognitive skills, but also the values and attitudes and dispositions which our panelists have been talking about. The kind of curiosity that Tom mentioned, the sense of equity that Sujata and, uh, and Vishal mentioned. So shining a spotlight on successful institutions who have taken a different path around purpose and saying, you know, these are in the real world. This is not on Mars or in La La Land. It is doable. So what will it take to turn these from being beautiful exceptions into being something that we can share in communities of practice? And as I say, I think that organisations like the OECD can play a huge part in enabling politicians to see that there is a, a, a doable way forward in practical terms if we can just build the public will for change. And building the public will for change involves many players. It involves media for a start. We haven't talked about the media at all yet. Um, but, I mean, you know, organisations like the universities, I think, are backed into a corner by how the media portray them. And many within the universities do want change, do want to see a better contribution to society as a whole. But they've got the media to contend with. So other panellists might want to talk about that. But those two ways, for me, are practical steps. One, shining a light on great institutions doing it. Two, scaffolding and supporting and promoting conversations at every level, which elevate the conversation to something which is more contemporary and more related to the realities that we're facing. Fantastic, yeah. And just before we turn to the questions, we wanted to really grapple with this aspect of, so on the one hand, there is a real sense that kind of we're all in this together. Uh, you know, we're, we're facing a, a pandemic together. Um, we're facing many other challenges like climate change together as a, as a world. On the other hand, of course, we're not <laughs> all in this together because we're in incredibly different conditions. Um, so Vishal, I wonder if you wanted to speak to that. of How do we think about this problem of, of really the impossibility of actually executing on a single global purpose of education. How do we sort of move forward really taking the current inequities we have in a, into account? Yeah, no, thank you, Amelia, for that question. Uh, I, I don't think I have a definitive answer, but more again, just reflections. Uh, you know, when I started understanding the pandemic uh, that happened in, in uh, continuing to happen now in India, uh, and I was talking to young people in some remote parts of the country, in the Northeast and in the Northern Hills of India. And for them, every year is a pandemic uh, because they live in conditions of disaster. You know, I was in rural Bihar where uh, I was going through villages and every year those villages get flooded 
and people have to move and then come back. Uh, I was in, uh, in in another state in the north of India where uh, for six months, entire populations from villages migrate to other states for jobs and livelihoods, taking the children with them and children lose out on school for six months and then they come back and they're in the next grade. Uh, so keeping those realities in mind, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to uh, have a singular global purpose of education without context. Uh, you know, again, in my travels a couple of months back, I was talking to young women uh, and young women in a state, uh, when I asked them what they did in the lockdown, they said, uh, oh, we were in the cotton fields with our parents picking cotton. Uh, and I was like, did you attend virtual classes? And they said, no, we didn't. Uh, and said, what did your brothers do during that time or, your, or the boys in the community did? They all attended virtual classes. Uh, another group of young women in the north of India I was talking to uh, one, one young woman said, uh, you know, 15 years old, I am one of 56 girls in my class and 30 of the girls in my class have been married off. And uh, her big worry was not that uh, examinations were coming up in a few weeks, but that she might also be married off. Uh, another young woman uh, ran away from home and uh, was staying with a friend and their family because her parents were trying to get her married off. Uh, Suchita spoke about uh, 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 no, what is becoming a media term, a sensational media term of COVID orphans. Uh, and increasingly we are seeing that uh, this is becoming a rich ground for child traffickers uh, because uh, kids are losing parents and extended families because of the fear of COVID uh, don't want to take them in. Uh, so keeping some of these contexts in mind, uh, it's extremely difficult to explore this idea of a global purpose for education. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, I am quite bought into this idea of thrive uh, because thrive can be contextualized. Uh, and especially when you put it in the context of those four levels of uh, thriving at an individual level and then thriving at an interpersonal level and society and the planet level. I think in each context that, that can be brought in. Uh, you know, when you talk about jobs, for example, there are no new jobs. You know, I mean, the, even in the best of economies, uh, you know, there'll be a few million new jobs created. Uh, but in India alone, you know, 12 million young people graduate out of university. And remember, these are just the 25 percent who did enter university, right? Uh, so there are no no jobs. But if you redefine and repurpose education to the idea of thriving. Uh, then young people have something to look forward to. They're not just going after the idea of, I need to get a job. And families are not just going into this narrative that if my, if my child gets a job, then we'll be out of poverty. But when you broad base that to an idea of thriving, that I'm happy, my well-being is taken care of, I have strong relationships, I'm an active citizen, I'm giving back to my communities, uh, which a lot of young people during this pandemic have also showed up. You know, we have had young people who in this pandemic volunteered with the local government, set up their own initiatives, raised funds for people who were in hospital, distributed food and rations. Uh, so it can be contextualized. Now, when I take that idea of thriving to these young people who are looking for a sense of identity, who are looking for a sense of purpose for themselves and their own life, and, and, they, and they have the life skills and the agency to do that, you know, thrive becomes an idea that they can stand with as opposed to academic success and jobs and careers. 
so while while we can debate about this global purpose of education, but kind of grounding it in an idea of thriving, I believe, and then fostering these conversations that Valerie is talking about, will be such a beautiful way to give something for young people to ground themselves with and look forward to. Thank you. So let's move from that. You, you bring in this focus on, on young people's agency. There's a question from um, Peter McDonough, who is asking about uh, this kind of ending of the dominance paradigm, the idea of ending that, and whether that could also extend to ending the dominance of adults over children and sort of professionals over, over students. Um, and Andreas and Sujetha, I wonder if you want to speak to that focus on, on kind of young people's agency. How would we rethink education to put that more centrally in place yeah you know i think actually agency is the answer to this you know i think if we did better to create more enabling more empowering environments for young people to to, to become the best version of themselves as individuals and as communities i think we have addressed that question of of dominance and power i think that's really i think what good education is about and at the in our work at the OECD we do not just speak of agency we also speak of of co-agency and I think that you know that capacity to bridge is also I think a, a big part of the answer to Vishad's point I think he makes the you know right observation that this is not about finding a kind of uniform global purpose of education uh, that certainly cannot be uh, the uh, a meaningful goal but i think what we can do is we can make people more aware and more open to different contexts you know i think uh, and, and in fact our last uh, pisa assessment on global competency looked at that aspect you know to what extent uh, do young people appreciate different ways of thinking different ways of walking to what extent are they open you know to other versions other contexts other cultures and uh, uh, and, and I think if we did better on this, if we create more of that openness, uh, we will create a more enabling environment. We will create a more kind of uh, bonding and bridging uh, social capital. I think one of the unique human capacities that we have is that, you know, we can bridge time and space. You know, we can enbridge context. We can actually, you know, relate to strangers. We can relate to people with different ways of thinking. But that takes energy. That takes a good education system. And I think if we did better with this, and uh, and Thomas know this, you know that's you know what diplomacy is all about. You know, can we f can we create the common ground that actually connects us? And I I do believe this is where agency is is absolutely critical. We also need to acknowledge that there are things where you know uh, younger people are better than older ones. Uh, openness, you know, uh, curiosity. Now, what's so great is, you know, everybody talks these days about creativity, but, you know, people are born with an abundance of curiosity and creativity. They're trying out everything, you know, put everything to the test, you know, question everything you say. And then, you know, later on, we try to make people compatible with our ways of thinking, our, our ways of working. We take, you know, bit by bit, we take that capacity away. But this is a kind of not something that we have to, you know, imagine, create. It's actually very human capability and that brings me to sort of the last point i wanted to make on this uh, very much to what tom said you know actually many of what much of what we you know frame here as the future of education is actually very much part of the origin of education you know what happened in the last few hundred years is that we have you know taken that away we have industrialized education because we wanted to make it available to a lot of people in the same way we have instrumentalized education 
because we saw, wow, we need a lot of people with those capabilities. Let's, you know, plug them into a specific kind of occupational profile. We have commodified education. Now we have basically made students consumers of learning content, taking away agency. We have made teachers service providers, you know, taking away their role as coaches, as mentors. We have made parents clients, you know, and again, that, those kinds of tendencies. We have divorced learning from assessment. Now we have young people piling up lots of stuff. And then, you know, somebody comes in and say, tell me everything that you've learned. Those are actually quite recent developments historically. You know, if you go back to the origins of education, you find a lot more of those kinds of human qualities that actually the future of education will be about. You know, we have buried a lot of that, you know, by, you know, tying education to specific uses and applications. But, you know, the certainty about the future is so much less now that we have to take a more open attitude and build more, rely more on the agency of learners themselves, you know, so that they, you know, can, you know, build their own future rather than just learning for our past. <clears throat> Absolutely. And on that, it's interesting to think about the parts of the world where education does still look different, you know, that there, there are still models. Um, just continuing on this focus with what it would mean or look like to put children and their agency more at the centre, um, there's a question from Azraj Mail for Sujetha about, uh, you mentioned how we can kind of take accountability for how we've let children down when building forward. Um, and as I was asking, if you could say a bit more what that might look like. Oh, yeah. Um, so again, I, I, I agree with both the points that Michelle and uh, Andreas has made. One is I do think that thriving can be like a global focus of education and we can right now take a pause. Like you said, that was our first invitation when this pandemic happened, just take a pause and don't try to build better, but build different, right? And I think we have that opportunity and thriving can give us a framework which can then be contextualized to different settings. And a big part of thriving can must lead to agency and giving agency back to children and helping them explore their creativity. But for me, accountability will come from a place of equity. This is true for all children and must be true. When I say accountability, it must be that this system then must work for this 15-year-old disabled Dalit girl living in rural India who's lost both her parents today and doesn't know what to do. Does she have the agency? Did education give her the agency to respond? And are we designing equitably from that lens? Are we making that the foundation of it? And that's something that Valerie talks about, that we need to leapfrog now. We can't keep saying, let's first solve for numeracy literacy. Let's first solve for employability. Let's then solve for digital learning. And then maybe we'll think about thriving. We don't have the luxury to do that. And for me, that is taking accountability to leapfrog. There was another question. And if I may just call out uh, an implicit kind of, you know, um, offering in that question that is, can, is it okay to disconnect employability, especially in developing economies? Right? There's a question about that. And we have to stop thinking like that. Just because children come from poor countries, we can't offer them poor solutions. We can't say, let them at least get employed first. And then we'll think about thriving. So that for me is accountability. Let's, let's help children respond to this crisis. Let them, let's help them thrive. Let's build a framework for thriving that applies to all children. But at the heart of it, it must be equitable. It must be same for all children, and it must especially work for children who are coming from vulnerable and difficult backgrounds. 
Um, I want to take, there's a question from Viapu uh, about the fact that education is also an income source. Um, and I think as we think about what you've been saying, Andreas, we have to really grapple with this. And Tom, I wondered if I might come back to you of how do we think about this in the tension, you know, in the higher education sector, we're dealing with this all the time, the fact that, you know, we are educational institutions, but also to some extent having to operate as if we were businesses. Um, so how do we think about that tension of the fact of kind of economics of education? I mean, it's a really important question because um, the uh, the money does talk very loudly, and you know, n now leading an educational institution, you really see the the tough choices. You know, especially as we emerge from uh, from the from the pandemic um, around spending. I think, in a way, that comes to the heart of the the politics of why this is so so difficult to do. Um, because when you you know, we, we, I spent two years looking at all the different obstacles to to change. And when you look at the, the, the role of governments, for example, which, which have been mentioned, I mean, part of our problem is that our current set of leaders don't have the sorts of skills that we've been describing so far. You know, look at the leadership of most countries during the pandemic. You don't see huge amounts of empathy and emotional intelligence and curiosity and all those sorts of skills uh, on display. So I don't think that governments will drive the change. There'll be some pioneers out there. And as people have said, we have to really highlight the great work that is being done in different sectors. But governments tend to be too short-term uh, in their thinking. They don't have enough trust uh, to actually deliver change. And many of them don't want to deliver change because they quite like education systems that teach their young kids uh, the history of the wars they happen to have won rather than how we live together between the wars. So then who else is going to drive the change? You look around. I have to confess, I don't think my sector now, universities will drive the change because we're very invested in this model. Again, there'll be individuals and many of them will be on this call um, who will drive change in their different ways. But universities as a whole won't be right out in front. Um, we've mentioned uh, parents. I think, you know, I've just dropped my kids off on the school run this morning. Um, individual parents do see the need for change. They do worry about, we all worry as parents about what our kids learn, but we are massively invested in the current accreditation model, uh, particularly more privileged parents who want their kids, as Andrea said, to basically learn uh, what they would learn. So parents won't necessarily change the system what about the institutions that we've subcontracted many of these questions to? Again, you've got extraordinary people like Andreas who are, who are doing the visionary thinking on these issues, but the institutions that they work for, and Andreas, forgive me, I, I, this isn't a, an anti-OECD comment, but the international structures can't make change happen because the individuals like Andreas are swimming against the tide of bureaucracy and inertia um, and often lack of uh, economic resource in those institutions as well. NGOs might drive some of the change, but many of those NGOs are actually dealing with having to deal with the symptoms of poor education rather than actually having the, the space to actually change it. So I think it does come back to your question, actually, to, uh, to Valerie. I think it's the kids uh, in the, at, the, in the, at the end of all this that will really drive that change, armed with a sense of purpose that we can help share with them, the agency that te the technology gives them, um, I reckon they'll be the constituency that actually makes change happen, that makes the ideas in Thrive uh, a reality. Fantastic. And I mean, building directly from that, this question of how do we drive change? We've got a few questions that I want to bring together. Um, firstly, from, from Tammy Campbell, um, uh, asking that more than a score is fundamentally challenging the purpose and methods of education in England. 
But despite being a coalition that's spanning the National Education Union, professional associations, academics and parents, um, they seem to be ignored by government. So Tammy is asking about kind of grassroots change and what might be effective. But I also want to bring in there um, a question from Tom Beresford about the fact that education systems have huge pandemic fatigue. Um, and so how does one sort of really build the energy and bandwidth to explore issues of shift um, while also taking seriously pandemic fatigue? Um, and then finally, I also want to bring in this question from Paul Turner about whether removing our commitment to standardized external examinations might be part of the solution. And I know there are a number of um, movements and networks around the world. Here in England, we have Rethinking Assessment, but in a number of other countries, really looking seriously at this question of standardized external examinations um, because of what's happened in the past year and how that has possibly opened up different alternatives. Um, I'd just love to, to invite any of you, if you want to come in on to any of these elements of how we might think about grassroots change, whether it's starting with the young people, whether it's focusing on removing examinations, or whether it's um, thinking more about pandemic fatigue that you want to, to comment on. Well, I'm happy to kick off while people gather their thoughts. <clears throat> and I'll take um, the question on um, pandemic fatigue. Um, of course, there's a, a hugely powerful impetus to get back to things as they were, just like we all want, you know, to, to kind of have aspects of our previous life restored. Um, and you'll all be sort of grappling with that. I, I'm thinking about, do I want to go back to the theatre the way I used to? Do I expect to go to, I mean, it raises all sorts of questions about your old life. And whilst the first impetus is in a kind of elastic one, I'm going back, I'm going back, I'm not so sure anymore. And what I'm finding with schools and teachers, classroom teachers, is that there is fatigue, sure, but, I mean, I'll, I'll talk in the UK because I'm so sorry to my Indian colleagues here. I know you're right in the middle of it. And to talk as if we're post-pandemic is insulting to you. And by the way, who knows whether we'll get another wave anyway. But in this particular space, whilst there is that fatigue, there's, there's a kind of an indication, like a straw in the wind. I often get invited to do conferences. I, I love doing them. I'm really interested in the themes that people are choosing now. And a lot of schools... Um, like here in, in England, there's an organisation called Whole Education, which brings in schools from across the country. I work with a, um, a network of schools, about 100 schools in northwest London. And they're all focusing on the issue of purpose. And it seems to me that just as I am with my life, thinking a bit more about how I want to live it, leaders of schools who have sort of got things back sort of to business as usual, They've got the show on the road again and now taking a breath and saying, OK, and where do I go from here? And I think it's not the immediate post-pandemic period. It's rather subsequent to that, that we will have the opportunity to engage in the kind of conversations, debate, discourse that I'm talking about. Hopefully, as Tom remarked, involving young people. And that will be key because it will be the young people who have the conversations with their parents. We know that what people say to their parents, what kids say to their parents is hugely influential on parents' attitudes. So if we can involve kids in those kinds of debates, and I always urge principals and head teachers that I'm working with, yes, start the debate in your school, but for heaven's sake, make sure 
that young people's voices are an absolutely critical part of that. Not tokenistically, not at the end on some kind of, you know, consultative exercise, but if properly scaffolding, they can make a really profound contribution. And I'm sure that will be a part of the future. So I'm not quite as pessimistic as the questioner Tom was about, Tom Beresford was about fatigue. Um, I think that there is an immediate space, but I think slightly longer than that, I'm, I'm seeing shifts in what it is that leaders of institutions at any rate are thinking about. I accept that that doesn't feed through to the politicians, but I've, I've already said, you know, I think, I think we have a different, I think we have a different struggle there and a different set of challenges. Um, and I think we have to be looking to the younger generation of politicians. As someone said, the, the, the crew who are currently steering the system are not up for this, and I don't think they're capable of it. Yeah, it's, uh, I actually agree with that sentiment very much. I think, you know, in this pandemic, we have seen an unprecedented amount of both social and technological innovation. And most importantly, actually, I think, those who are innovators in the system have seen that they're not alone. Actually, the pandemic has actually been quite good in, in, in getting more initiative and more action to the front line. Uh, we have seen a huge shift in the governance of education systems. Basically, you know, those heavy bureaucratic administrative structures of control have broken down. And that's basically not what saved people. It was, you know, the activity and the initiative taken at the front line by students, by teachers, by school leaders. And uh, I, that's also what you can see on a global scale. You know, those education systems that were quickest to reopen schools were precisely those. So I think actually on this, I'm optimistic that actually the pandemic will leave a momentum despite all of the fatigue that obviously, you know, is there. Uh, but I actually wanted to, you know, get back to your question on, on exams. You know, if we had to cancel exams, because we couldn't get students on a particular day into a particular room to answer a particular set of questions to which we already knew the answers. Probably those kinds of exams have lived out the purpose. Uh, and I, I think, I don't think those exams will necessarily come back, but uh, I do believe that it is crucially important. You know, if we are, if we want to seriously debate, you know, the, the why and the what of education, that we need to be clear about, you know, what the, criteria of success are and how we will make success visible. So I do think, you know, exams will become more challenging, but I do think they will become even more important than in the past. I hope that we will see less prescription in what students learn and actually greater clarity in the goals and purposes of education framed by exams. So actually that in a way the exams or whatever you will have in this place will become more important and at the same time we will see a lot more you know innovation responsiveness to individual needs you know more empowerment of learners to think about you know how do i learn best what do i learn best where do i learn best when do i learn best i i so in that sense i think exams themselves i think uh will be of increasing importance but you know i think there will also be uh, big changes Technology will probably empower a lot of changes here as well. You know, the biggest crime that you could commit in an exam is to, to look up, you know, what your neighbor has done. Actually, you know, at the same time, we say we want to foster collaborative skills. So maybe in the future, we should design exams that actually reward, you know, collaboration as much as individual kind of capabilities and agency. 
another crime that you can make in an exam is to, you know, to look up things in a book or on the internet or on, on Google. Well, you know, again, I would say, you know, give students whatever tool they find useful and actually test the kind of things that they enable them to make sense out of the world around them. So I think we should, you know, have a hard look at redesigning our metrics, our exams. But I, I do believe, you know, a world without exams will lead to endless prescription. Then we go back to actually, you know, telling every teacher exactly what to teach and how to teach it. And that, I think, will uh, drive us in the opposite direction. And then maybe last point, you know, on this point, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of initiative ignored by government. I'm not so sure, actually, policymakers do get very conflicting messages. You know, most people say, you know, I'm in favor of innovation, you know, except for my own child. You know, people get very, very nervous when it actually affects them personally. The same for teachers. So actually, it's 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 hard for policymakers to really take risks, to, uh, particularly when the time horizon of changes is, is so long. I think, you know, we as in, in the education field should probably be more, you know, supportive for, for long-term change and make it easier for policymakers to innovate and take risks and, uh, you know, also afford mistakes. You know, this is another thing as a policymaker, you know, you have said something slightly different than what you said 15 years ago and people will say, oh, you're contradicting yourself and God knows what. You know, I think if we want, you know, education to learn, we have to give, you know, students the capacity to learn, teachers the capacity to learn, and policymakers also, you know, space to, to learn. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I do just want to underscore that distinction between the question of sort of exams in themselves being a problem and that kind of scrapping them would be some magical solution to really thinking about assessment design, you know, um, even just from the small experience of universities this year. The, the things that have been possible when you can, for example, give people longer to work on something, ask them different kinds of questions, invite use of collaboration of looking things up online, um, I think is, is points a little bit of a direction forward. Vishal, Tom or, or Sujaita, I want to give you a chance to come in on that <coughs> round of questions. Otherwise, there are many more coming in to bring in. So I was just typing one. I think there's a question around, uh, you know, the purpose of education and the intersectionality of it. I think there's a question around LGBTQ, LGBTQ rights also. Uh, and for me, at least, where the answer is that thriving must be seen as a two-way street for me. Thriving is, of course, young people must find must be able to find agency, respond to challenges, have the skills uh, and the creativity and the empathy to respond to these challenges. But we must, as a society, also work on these systemic barriers that come in the way of young people. And when thriving is seen as both of this, it's not just the young people and all the owners on them and now they need to thrive suddenly while the world remains the same. But we take accountability also for removing systemic barriers and that, and that is much more holistic. So when we look at thriving, like Valerie said, from all these different dimensions, um, and we, in, we integrate intersectionality and systemic barriers into that uh, definition of what will help or the system that can help young people thrive. Uh, is for me when you know we can conceptualize this purpose of education in a much uh, in a much more holistic way. And thank you to to Sophie Brady and to Joel Hooper for those questions. I think um, how we bring in that more kind of intersectional understanding um, and and perhaps yeah start from from individuals in all of their complexity as well as starting from from some sort of top down view as we've seen throughout the conversation is important. Um, Vishal, any further reflections? I've actually become a listener to everything that's shared. <laughs> so fascinated with everything that's coming in. 
Uh, not really. I think Andreas uh, put it very beautifully. Uh, uh, I think the role of policymakers. Uh, I must admit that in in the first uh, decade of our work with young people in India, I was a bit wary of uh, politicians and policymakers. Uh, but in the last uh, eight odd years, when we have actually started working more actively with policymakers in India. Uh, we have actually seen uh, the capacity to change, uh, the capacity to be reflective, the capacity to be innovative and creative, uh, and also bring in bold reforms. Uh, it's just been fantastic. Uh, an example of that has been the Delhi government, uh, which has done very aggressive education reforms in the state, including introducing well-being and holistic development-focused curriculums like the happiness curriculum. Uh, and now in the last year, focusing on a complete curriculum reform process uh, from a traditional academic focus curriculum to a more holistic uh, education focus uh, for all children of Delhi, which is about 2 million odd children in Delhi, and truly becoming an example for other states to emulate. Uh, so I do agree. I think uh, if you have to build these new, fresher narratives around education, uh, while the the, uh, the demand for it needs to be bottom up, uh, coming from young people and parents, uh, and for them to shift uh, their own narratives of the purpose of education, uh, we shouldn't write off policymakers. Uh, we have to engage them in these narratives, and we will be quite pleasantly surprised how well they respond sometimes. Yeah. An optimistic note as we just move towards closing. Um, Tom, any final request, uh, reflections? And I, I just want to bring in and mention uh, Druba Pragyal has, has um, noted this issue of the way that some forms of education kind of restrict innovation and the possibility of making the world flat for all to innovate and explore better ideas. And I wondered if you had any final reflections, Tom, on what the role of universities might be if we're thinking about them beyond being buildings, um, you know, we, we may have different different views on, on whether we would like the world to be flat or not, but more just that that vision of kind of more international collaboration um, of what that might look like. Um, sure, and thank you so much for the chance to be part of this conversation and to, and to listen and learn um, from the other speakers. The, uh, I mean, so I'm just launching actually my college's um, 2030 plan. Uh, it's actually launched as, as we spoke. <laughs> On this call, and the, the basic idea is that that will be a front line for a better society, and I think you can do that as a university through the, the the way you teach, through the way you do your research, through the way you develop young people to go out there and be good citizens and good and good ancestors. Um, so that that for me, I think it's very important that we don't get too prescriptive about what and how we teach, um, but that we do give people that overall sort of sense of of purpose that this conversation has focused on. Two two other very quick points, picking up on. The conversation. One, and there's a question in the chat about how do you actually teach diplomatic skills? Because in a way, I've been I've been making the case that the sorts of things that we call 21st century skills in my world we call diplomacy. Most important one, I think, is about being able to see the perspective of the other side. How important is this now in the kind of days of social media uh, arguments and other sorts of arguments, you know, polarizing debates in our society? But you can teach that. And Andreas's work and the work of others here has shown the way in which you can actually develop those skills. You know, get onto the BBC website and try and imagine, put yourselves in the shoes of the person you disagree with and try and argue their case and try and understand why they think uh, in that way. So it can be done. And then a final thought, because someone on the chat said, you know, what's the, uh, I think it was Claudine said, what's the thing that, the one thing that we could change? I think this conversation has highlighted again for me that accreditation is so important to all of this. Not the exams, as everyone has, ex has explained, but 
if you want to incentivize young people to take more control of their own education, you have to give them something that at the end of it, they can show that they're succeeding and that they're doing the right thing. And so if you have accreditation that rewards some of the skills we've spoken about, and Andreas's global competency work is, is an example of this, then that incentive is built in. But also you need accreditation that is more portable. The Syrian refugees I work with go through five or six different education systems, five or six different exam systems, five or six different forms of accreditation, and they end up basically with virtually nothing to show for it at the end of it. So can we develop ways to, to make the way that we show that young people have developed these sorts of skills more portable and more credible? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to turn to you, Valerie, just for, for a final word. Uh, before we close, but um, for me, just to thank everybody so much for being here and, and your fantastic questions. Um, and we look forward to finding ways to continue the conversation on other platforms. Valerie. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity just to come back. And I too have been made very thoughtful by everyone's contributions. So thank you all for it. Um, I want to repeat, I, I actually feel a bit more optimistic than I've done for some years. Um, and I'm, that's not how I'm built. It's not how I'm wired. I, I do think there are signs of hope. Um, but I would want to just say a couple of things. One, I'd urge everybody who's listening to this, please read the book, not because I want to flog copies, <laughs> you know, money I'm buying books, but because please engage with the ideas and, and start to discuss them with others. Because, yes, Tom, I agree with you that assessment is a huge bottleneck, a huge obstacle, but we won't get the, the kind of pass to get really radical and innovative about that until we've got a broader purpose and a different discussion, a different discourse about what counts as success. That's what will enable us to move into that space. Otherwise, we'll be, we'll be saying, you know, we'll be stuck with the old paradigm. And although I'm feeling optimistic, I do just want to say one last thing about actually the role of universities, it being appropriate, this being hosted by LSE today. And that is that, you know, the way in which success is defined in all our societies that, that are represented on this call, the universities still are the kind of zenith of what everyone is aiming at and the kind of definer of success. And frankly, if you don't get to university and you don't get degree, you're pretty much a second-class citizen. And that has got to shift because as long as we do that, as Michael Sandel in his wonderful book, The Tyranny of Merit, says, you, you end up with hubris for the winners and humiliation and resentment for the losers who don't go to a university. So universities do have to rethink their place, but not because I want everyone to go there, because I don't think they should. What are universities actually for in a broad range of educational opportunities, which, as others have said, must la last all of our lives. We must all stay learners. But all those other kinds of learning opportunities and the realisation of different kinds of talents must also be recognized and valued. And right now, we don't. The truth is, it's a university degree or you are second class. That is the definition of success in our cultures. And so much flows from that, I think, which is deleterious to thriving in the fullest sense of things. And that's gonna be a hard one to shift. I mean, all of us on this call, that's our culture. You know, we, we deal in that as our currency. So it's, 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 it's difficult and it's, it's Countercultural, and it's it comes up against some very deep, deeply held beliefs. Hell, you know, I believe in the cognitive, I believe in science, but I have to learn that achieving in other kinds of ways is powerful, essential. You know, and didn't the pandemic teach us that? You know, <laughs> um, who was it who kept societies moving and running? 
wasn't people in the ivory towers, frankly. It was people doing other kinds of work which we do not value and do not train for and do not recognise uh, and give real opportunities to. So um, that's a rather rounded way of saying the, the stasis of the universities in our societies at the moment, I think, locks in a view about what counts as success in education and is, is not yet conducive towards a more holistic conception of thriving, which I passionately believe is vital for us to make our way as a species. So, but those final thoughts, thank you. But I do remain optimistic. <laughs> thank you. Well, we will leave things there on that note of tension. Um, it's always good to give ourselves something more to, to think about and work for. So just uh, thank you so much all again for being here. Thank you so much to Andreas, Vishal, Sujetha, Valerie and Tom for their fantastic thoughts and um, many wishes for the rest of the day.